All right, so uh, today is our week number 12. We are shooting for three months almost. Talking about the blood of Jesus. I'm glad after three months we know the title. <laughs> That's a good progress. Okay, we are talking about the power of the blood of Jesus. Again, uh, today is sermon number 12, but it's title number 11 because we spent two weeks talking about one thing. So let's recap. By the way, last been tracking, I've been preaching extra 10 minutes the last couple of times because it take a lot of time just to re- rehearsal and just say everything that we have been through, which is great. So the power of the blood of Jesus, what have we discussed so far? What was the first blessing that we have in the blood of Jesus, Sister Nancy? Amen. The forgiveness of our sins through the shedding of the blood. The scripture reference is Hebrews chapter 9. Without the blood shed, there is no forgiveness. Now we go to Barb. What is, <laughs> what is the second power that we have in the blood of Jesus? Enter into the holy places. Hebrews chapter 10. We have confidence to enter into the holy places. How? By the blood of Jesus. Amen. Then is it Wayne or Nancy after that? What's number three? No, number, okay, you think number four. Number three, Sister Nancy. The blood of the covenant. We enter into a new covenant with God because of the blood of Jesus. And that's Luke 22. Remember, what? 20. Okay, we'll take your word for it. Luke 22, 20. What did Jesus say? He said, this is my blood for the new covenant that was shed for many for the remission of their sins. Amen? So that's number three. Number four. We are purchased by the blood of Jesus. And that is from Revelation chapter 5. That's the only reference we're going to use right now. When the multitudes stand before Christ and they're going to sing to him that amazing song, You are worthy Lamb of God. If you know it, just say it with me. To take the scroll and open it up. Why? Because you were slain and you have done what? You have purchased us to God. Your father with your own blood. Amen. So we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Number five. Acquired acquired by the blood of Jesus. Scripture for that is in Acts 20.28. That's what Paul told the elders in Ephesus. What did he say? Pay close attention to the church of God which he has purchased. Which he has acquired by the blood of his own. Amen. So that is acquired by the blood. Number six. Redeemed by the blood. Reference to that, Nancy. First Peter 1, 18 and 19, right? What did Peter say? He said that we have not been redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from our... If you know it, say it with me. Let's try to memorize all this wonderful scripture. From our aimless conduct that we have inherited from our forefathers. But we have been redeemed with what? With the precious blood of Christ as with a lamb without blemish and without spot. Amen? So we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and we have been... We have been set free. We have been freed by the blood of Jesus. And that is Revelation chapter 1. When the hymn, the song to Jesus, it says like this. To him, to to the one who loved us so much so that he has set us free from our sins. How? By his blood. And made us what? Kings and priests to God the Father. Amen. So we have been freed by the blood of Jesus. What else? I lost count. We have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus. And that is from? Colossians 1. Oh man, look at that. Colossians 1. Make sure you report that, okay? (laughs) Colossians chapter 1. Is it 19 and 20? Something like that, right? What did Paul say? He said that it pleased God to do two things, right? That in Christ, the fullness of deity will dwell. That's number one. And number two, to reconcile everything. Things that are in heaven and things that are on earth. To reconcile everything in Christ. Having made peace. How? By the blood of his cross. Amen. And what is the result of that? You. This is good news. You who were once alienated and enemies in your thoughts through bad works, through evil works. What happened now? You have been reconciled, right? He has reconciled in his physical body through death. And what is the result of that? We have been presented holy in his sight, above reproach and without blemish. Amen. We have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus. What else? 
We have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And that is from Ephesians chapter 2. Correct. 13. What does it say? But now, this is good verse, I love it. But now, in Christ Jesus, amen, you who were once afar off, so far you were alienated, you were enemies, but you who were once afar off have been what? Brought near, how? By the blood of Jesus, amen, by the blood of Christ. So we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, and then what else? That was last week. We have been what? Justified. We have been declared righteous before God. How? By the blood of Jesus. Amen. What is the scripture for that? Romans chapter 5 verse 9. Right? 9 and 10. What does it say? Say, how much more? Paul says, how much more? Now that we have been justified by his blood, we shall be saved through him, through Jesus, from the wrath to come. Amen. And then he says, for if when we were enemies to God, we were reconciled to him by the blood of through the death of his son, how much more, how much more we shall be saved by his life. Amen? We have been justified by the blood of Jesus. You guys are great. I love it. Today is number 11, power that we have in the blood of Jesus. And we're going to talk about a big word called propitiation. Okay, that's a big word. So let's read from Romans 3, 21 to 26. And then we're going to try to discuss that a little bit. So here is what Paul says. Again, if you want my recommendation to memorize one passage in the scripture, it will be this one, okay? Romans 3, 21 to 26. Look at what Paul says. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. This is just amazing. Is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is powerful. To all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen. Being justified, how much? How much you pay? Freely by His grace. Through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that's where we're going to stop here. Verse 25. Whom God has set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that was previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That he might be the just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. And we talked about this last week. How God is the just and the justifier. Wasn't that good? I I enjoyed it. Anyway, so today we're going to stop at verse 25. And here is what Paul said. Paul said that God has set forth Christ as a propitiation by his blood. So he's saying that there is something called propitiation by the blood of Jesus. So what is propitiation? This is a big word. If, if you read the Greek for it uh, in the New Testament, it literally means to... Um, it, the idea is like this, that the gods are angry. And then through the process of propitiation, you offer them something so the wrath is eased. That's the idea in the Greek mindset, okay, for, for the Greeks who are heathens, who are not um, believing in God or anything like that. That there is wrath, that there is anger, and through a gift, this process is called propitiation, giving the gift, then the wrath subsides. Obviously, Even the word has similarity in the Bible, but it's different. And I'll talk to you about that in a second. The corresponding word to the word propitiation in the New Testament is actually, in the Old Testament, is the word kafor. And you have the same word to cover. And yeah, it's the same thing in Arabic. Kapor, yes. Yes. And Yom Kapor, if you heard that term, that's the Day of Atonement in, in the calendar of Israel, which we call in English the Day of Atonement. The word atonement or covering is the corresponding Old Testament terminology to the New Testament word of propitiation. They pretty much have the same meaning, okay? So in the Bible, here is what the word propitiation or atonement means, okay? That God is angry because we have sinned. God is a holy God, and sin is breaking the law of God. It provokes God into wrath, and because God is angry, the only way that this wrath can go away, that this anger, that this judgment, that this punishment can go away, is through the process that is called what? Propitiation, or atonement, or 
covering. The idea here is this, that the sin is covered before the eyes of God. And when the sin is covered, then the penalty of sin can go away. You guys follow me so far? And that's precisely what Paul was telling us here, that the process by which the wrath of God over sin has gone away is called propitiation. And that propitiation can only be achieved through what? The blood of Jesus. It's only because of the blood of Jesus, Paul says, that the wrath of God over sin has quenched. That's the point, okay? We'll discuss that in detail. Now, the word propitiation in the New Testament was mentioned primarily four times, okay? Here is the references for it. Hebrews 2.17, here is what the author of Hebrews say. Therefore, he had to be made, that's the Lord Jesus, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pretend to God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of his People or for the people. First John 2, 2. And he himself is our propitiation. That's the Lord Jesus. For our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. First John 4, 10. This is the third reference. In this is love. If you want to ever know what is the biblical definition of love, here it is. First John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and He sent His Son. Why? To be the propitiation for our sin. This is how God showed His love for you and me. That He would send Jesus to die on the cross to be the propitiation, the atonement, and the covering for you and me. Amen? And the last reference is the one that we just read, Romans 3.25, whom God, talking about Christ, displayed publicly as a propitiation, how? By his blood. Okay? So these are the four times in the New Testament that the word was mentioned. The first one in Hebrews, it's actually a verb, okay, uh, to make propitiation, to propitiate. Now, in 1 John and in Romans, it's a noun in Greek. But there is a difference between the word, actually. They're not all identical. In 1 John, the noun here, the word literally means propitiation or atonement or covering, okay? But the word in, in Romans, it's more talking about the place of covering, the place of atonement, okay? So in the Greek, these two words are not the same. What John was used is not the same word that Paul was used. John just used the flat out the word for propitiation, Paul more spoke about the place, the emphasis in, in that term, that word that Paul used in Romans 3.25, is the place of atonement rather than the process of atonement. Okay? Now, the word that Paul used here in Romans 3.25 when he said, God has set Christ forth as a propitiation by his blood, the place of atonement. Actually, that Greek word was mentioned, was mentioned one more time in the whole New Testament after that. And that's in Hebrews 9, 4 to 5. Here is what the author of Hebrews says. Talking about the tabernacle of Moses in the Old Testament, he said this. Hebrews 9, 4 to 5. The Ark of the Covenant, that's in the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was, that, was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it, that's above the Ark of the Covenant in the very Holy of Holies, there was the cherubim, cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat... The actual Greek word here is the exact same Greek word that Paul used in Romans 3.25 when he talks about Christ. So he's saying Christ is our mercy seat. And he has become our mercy seat for Christ. How? By his blood. We're going to discuss that in a second. Okay? So that is kind of like where we're heading. Let's just... Try to break it down a little bit. Today I want to talk about three things. How there is propitiation by the blood of Jesus. Three points. Number one, the need for propitiation. Okay? And number two, the way of propitiation. And number three, the response to the God's propitiation. Okay? So let's say it together. Make sure you follow me. Number one, the need for propitiation. Number one, the way of propitiation. And number three, the response to propitiation, man's response to God's propitiation, okay? So let's start with number one, the need for propitiation. Everybody look at me for a second. Let me ask you a question. What is sin? Disobeying God. Disobeying God. What else? 
Yes. That's uh, the biggest sin. You're absolutely right about that. Yes. What is sin? The, the common thing that we read, like pastors or ministers or whatever, people who study tells you sin is missing the mark, right? And that is actually the literal Greek meaning for the word hermatia, sin, literally means missing the mark. Like if you have a mark and you shoot at it, but you don't hit it, you just hit next to it or hit far away from it. That's literally the, 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 the meaning, the literal meaning of the word sin in Greek. However, having said that, the, the point that sin is missing the mark is absolutely almost absent altogether in the mind of the New Testament writer. When Paul or Peter or anybody or Matthew or anybody sitting down to, to write the New Testament, when they talk about sin, they're really not thinking about missing the mark, right? This is not what's in their thought. We have been discussing the blood of Jesus for, for quite a few weeks now, right? And we say that it's because of the blood of Jesus that we can enter into the holy place, right? We say that without blood, we cannot enter into the holy place, right? And when we discuss that, we said that the thing that holds us back from entering into the holy place with God is what? Sin. It's because of sin that we cannot approach God. We talked about the blood of Jesus that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus from sin. You know why? Because the Bible tells us that sin is a cruel master that holds us very captives and slaves to it. That a ransom money needed to be paid so we can be set free, right? We talked about the blood of Jesus that we have been, what else? We have been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus. Remember why? Because sin makes us enemies with God. We discussed that. We said that even thinking about sin makes you an enemy to God, right? So in the mind of the New Testament writer, sin is not just something mild or something moderate or something you can work with. In the mind of any New Testament writer, sin is this heavy, grave, massive disaster that is the root of every single problem that humanity and God have together. Amen? It is the root of every single issue that we as humans have with a holy and a righteous God, right? And the Bible defines sin for us. And here is the actual biblical definition from the mouth of John. Here is what he said about sin. First John 3, 4. He said, everyone who makes the practice of sin, of sinning, um, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice what? Lawlessness. And sin is what? Lawlessness. This is how the Bible defines sin. It is lawlessness. Now, the Greek word for lawlessness here is anomia, which two parts in it. The word nomos means law, and then you have the letter a negative before it. It's like the English word atypical means not typical. You know what I mean? It's the exact same Greek thing. It says sin is Without law, to be without law. But the noun actually doesn't mean that you're actually ignorant of the law or you don't know what the law is. The noun lawlessness literally means you are a violator of the law. This is precisely how John defines, defines sin for us. Sin is to be intentionally, positively going out of your way to break the law of God. And that is sin. Sin is simply violation of the law of God. Amen? And that's why James said in James 2.11, listen to that verse. James 2.11, for he who said, James says, do not commit adultery. That's God. He said, do not commit adultery. Also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become what? A transgressor of the law. What James is telling us is this. When you sin, you are an active breaker of the law of God. That's what sin does. You break the law of God. And that's the very definition of sin is. So every time you lie, every time you steal, every time you manipulate, every time you have impurity, guess what you're doing? You are breaking the law of a holy and a righteous God. Amen? Now, this is bad news. You know why? Because every time the law of God is broken, wrath is provoked from God because He's a holy and a righteous God. Amen? He's a just God. He's a just judge. And a just judge can never let the law be broken and go unpunished. Amen? If you break the law according to God, there is wrath that is being provoked and you have to pay for that penalty of sin. Amen? Now look at this. This is some scary stuff. 
The Bible tells us that there is wrath from God against every sinful action. Every time you do sin, you commit sin, you provoke the wrath of God. That's Romans 1.18. Look what Paul said. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against how much? All ungodliness and unrighteousness. He didn't say 90%. Every single ungodliness, every single unrighteous deed that a human being will ever do, what does it do in return? It makes God angry. And the wrath of God is revealed against every single sin every human being has ever committed. Amen? Amen. But not just the action, not just the sinful deeds. Idle words. To say a word that is idle or empty, that provokes the wrath of God. That's bad news. Look, I, I can't remember how many idle words I've ever said. Look at this, Ephesians 5, 6. Look what Paul says. Let no one deceive you with what? Empty words. Why? For because of these things that what? The wrath of God. Empty words provokes the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. That's crazy stuff, isn't it? That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 20, 22, look at this. Whoever said to his brother, you're good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Supreme Court. And look at the scary words of Jesus. And whoever says to his brother, what? You fool, look at this, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. God is a holy God. He doesn't accept sin. He doesn't tolerate sin. He doesn't accommodate sin. He doesn't just punish the actions that we do. The words that we say. Every single idle and empty word provokes God's wrath against sin. Amen? Amen. But not only that. Every wicked thought. If you just think about it without actually doing it. It still provokes the wrath of God. Look at that. Colossians 3, 5 to 6. Look what Paul said. He said, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, as dead to immorality, that's fornication or sex outside of marriage, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which mounts, amounts to idolatry. Why? For it is because of these things, what happened? The wrath of God will come upon the sons of what? Disobedience. Think about it. Think about it. The wrath of God is being provoked for immorality. Okay, I get that. Okay, but look at the rest of that. The list. The rest of that list. Impurity. The Bible is pretty vague about it. It can be impure thought. Can be impure intention. Like if you do something but your intentions are not pure, guess what happened? The wrath of God is being provoked. Look at the two options. Two, two objects after that. Passion, evil desires. Now let me ask you a question. You might have evil desire. It does not necessarily mean that you acted on it, right? Just having that evil desire, not just have a passion for sin or a desire for sin. What happens in response? The wrath of God is revealed against the sons of disobedience who have evil desires and wicked desires. Amen? <clears throat> bad news, huh? <laughs> Very bad news. I can't even remember how much wrath of God against me. God is a holy God. He's a righteous God. He cannot take sin. He doesn't tolerate sin. He doesn't accommodate sin. Every single sin that we have ever committed, every single thoughtful, sinful thought that we ever had, or every idle word we have ever said, God's wrath is declared over it, and God is going to judge it. Look at this. That's why in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28 to 31, we read the scripture before, but look what the author of Hebrews says. He says, anyone who has rejected Moses' laws dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now think about this, verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit, the spirit of grace. Verse 31. For it is a fearful, what, thing to fall into the hand of what? The living God. Think about this. Verse 29. It says, verse 28. It says, if you sin against the law of Moses, you die without mercy. Two people see you sinning against the law of Moses. You're dead. That's all what it takes. And there's no mercy for you, right? But then in verse 29, he said, how much worse punishment. Now, well, think about it for a second. When you want to, like, threaten somebody with the ultimate punishment, what do you tell them? I'm going to kill you, you know? Because supposedly death, this is like as bad 
as it could ever get, right? But the Bible tells us that there is a much worse punishment than death itself for every single soul that sinned against God. Amen? We talked about this before. I think it was my second sermon here. When we talked about hell and how it looks like, it might be a good idea to remind you. We said that hell is like a literal liquid Lego fire, right? We talked about the sulfur and how it melts and it turns to actual lava, like the lava that comes out of the volcanoes. This is literally how hell looks like. And when Jesus said it's a fiery hell, it was not, or the fiery furnace, he was not referring to like an oven or a furnace where you bake your bread or something like that at 400 degrees. It was referring to a furnace where you actually melt the iron and the earthen vessel so you can actually reshape it. And the average temperature for that is about 2 thousand degrees two thousand degrees in a literal liquid fire for all eternity this is how much a holy and a righteous God is going to punish sin the need for propitiation ready for some good news I am ready for some good news amen Romans 3.25 that is some good news right here Talking about Christ. And God says, whom God has set forth as a propitiation. How? By his blood. Amen? Now, we discussed that. I mentioned that earlier. That the word propitiation here literally means mercy seat. So I want you to flip with me to the very last page of your notes. Because I want to show you something. I thought this might help us understand what Paul is literally trying to tell us. The very last page, there's a diagram of how the tabernacle of meeting that was throughout the time of Moses looked like. And you can enter from that gate right here on your right hand if you're looking at the paper. You enter from the gate, and then the first thing you see is an altar called the burnt offering altar. And then right after that, there is a, a, a laver where there's water in it so you can wash. And then you enter to an actual house, the actual tabernacle. has two rooms in it, right? The first room called the holy place has three items in it. We're not going to discuss that. And then the second, the inner room, there's a veil that separates the outer room from the inner room. And then the very inner room has, it's called something, the holy of holies. And it has only one piece of furniture. That one piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. That is the piece of furniture that represents the presence of God among his people. It's like wherever the ark go, God goes. It represents the presence of God. Amen? And the lead, the lead that covers that ark of the covenant called the mercy seat, right? If you look at the picture, there is like two angels facing one another covering that piece of furniture. These are actually two cherubim. And the lid is actually hammered that the cherubims are made on it. it. It was not engraved or anything like that. The whole thing was just hammered together. And it was covered by two angels called what? The cherubim. Right? And if you remember what we discussed about that when we talked about how we enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We said that these cherubim represent Anybody remembers? Represent the wrath of God. Why? Because the very first time we read about the cherubim was in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve sinned and they were kicked out of the garden. The Bible said that God placed what? A cherubim, an angel with that turning sword to guard the way back so Adam and Eve cannot come back. So every time we read about the cherubim there is what? Wrath. There is judgment. Amen? And once a year, just once a year, one day a year, the high priest can enter into the very holy of holies in front of that ark. But the high priest could not enter without blood. The high priest had to have the blood of a sacrifice with him. And when he entered that one time a year, what he does, he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, over that shadow beam, over that cover, and before the mercy seat. Okay? So in an essence, what is going on there is like this. The shadow beam represents the wrath of God. God is angry with Israel because they have been sinning against him. And God is about to devour them in his wrath because they did what is wrong in his eyes they broke his law and he cannot tolerate that anymore but once a year when the high priest entered into the holy of holies and he sprinkled the blood on that mercy seat then the wrath of God over the children of Israel would quenish because the blood provides atonement for the children of Israel amen and that's precisely 
see what Paul was telling us here. That we are sinners. We have sinned against God. We have provoked his wrath. And we deserve his judgment. But through the blood of Jesus. The wrath of God over every single sin. Was ever committed. Can ever be quenched. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah to the blood of Jesus. Amen. Jesus is the propitiation. He is our mercy seat that provides covering for our sins before a holy and a righteous God. Amen. Amen. Let me show you some other examples in the Bible where the blood stops the wrath. So you can know for sure that we truly, truly have propitiation in the blood of Jesus. The second example in Exodus chapter 12. I'm not sure how many of you guys remember the story. But what happened then is that the children of Israel were in the land of Egypt in captivity for hundreds of years. And God wanted to set the children of Israel free. But Pharaoh would harden his heart, right? That God needed actually to strike Egypt ten different times with ten different plagues. So that Pharaoh would be okay with the children of Israel to leave, right? And the very last plague, anybody remembers what happened? What was the very last one? That God said, I will kill the firstborn of both animals and human. I'm just going to go through the land of Egypt. Every single firstborn, it doesn't matter who he is or what it is. I'm going to kill it. This is my judgment over Egypt because they have not let the children of Israel go, right? But then God provided a way for the children of Israel to be saved from that. What did God do? He said, bring a lamb without blemish. Kill that lamb. Take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the lentil and the two door posts, right? And let's pick up from here. Exodus 12, 12 to 13. Here is what the Lord said. For I will pass, look at this, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against the gods of Egypt, I will do what? I will execute wrath. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Verse 13. Now the blood. Listen to this. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. Amen. And when I see the blood, God says, I will pass over you. Amen. And the plague shall not be on on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Amen. And that very night, friends, God Almighty went through the very land of Egypt to execute his judgment and execute his wrath. To go and kill every single firstborn in the land. Amen? But before, look at this, before God enters into the house, he checks out first to see if there is blood on the door or not. Amen? And if there is no blood, guess what we'll do? God will go through the door. He'll pass through that door and execute his judgment and kill the firstborn. Amen? But if there is blood on that door, amen? God is not going to go through. He, he's not going to pass through. He's going to pass over that door and go to the next one. Amen? And the blood that night with the hedge and the wall that will protect every single soul inside that house from the wrath of God. Amen? Listen to this. The wrath of God could not get through the blood. You hear me? You hear me? The wrath of God could not get through the blood. Amen? And friends, nothing much has changed since then. The same God who went through the land of Egypt that one night to execute judgment, one soon day will come to also execute judgment against every single sin a human being has ever committed. Amen? And just like that night when the blood was the hedge and the wall and the protection from the wrath of God, also that one day when he comes to judge sin, the blood of Jesus will be the only way for you and me to be protected from the wrath of God. Amen? It didn't matter that night if you were rich or poor, if you're Egyptian or a Jew. It didn't matter if you're good as Moses and Aaron or as wicked as as Pharaoh. One thing mattered that night. What was it? Are you covered in the blood or not? End of story, right? If you're covered in the blood, you're safe. And if you're not covered, you're doomed. Amen? And it's the same exact thing. God has provided propitiation, salvation from his wrath for every single soul through the blood of Jesus. Amen? And if you're covered in the blood, the wrath of God will pass over you. And if you're not covered in the blood, the wrath of God will pass through you. Amen? Amen. That's example number one. Let me read another example for you. Leviticus 17, 11. Look at this verse. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, God says. And I have given it to you. 
Look at this. I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement. That's the purpose of the blood, God says. I have given it to you to make atonement for your souls. And then he says, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Amen? Amen. Let's say this together. It is what? The blood. It is the blood that makes atonement to the soul. Now God says that he has given the blood on the altar for atonement. What altar? Let's go back to that diagram, okay? Flip back one more page. There is two altars in that tabernacle, right? One in the yard called the altar of the burnt offering or the bronze altar. And there is another altar inside the holy place called the altar of incense. The altar of incense, God just had incense being burned on it all the time. It has nothing to do with the sacrifices or the blood or anything like that. So that's not the one that God was talking about in Leviticus chapter 17. He's actually was talking about the very first altar. The one at the entrance of the tabernacle that is called the burned sacrifice altar. So what was happening on that altar is this. God would offer so many, um, there were so many offerings on that altar every single day. But two in particular called the burned offering, okay? One is offered in the morning where a bull or a lamb or something like that is being brought, being slaughtered, and then it's offered on that altar. It's actually lit on fire. It's burning, and the smoke ascends before God. It's offered on the altar in the morning, and it keeps burning throughout the day till the evening time, okay? And on the evening, they bring another sacrifice, slaughter it, put it on the altar, and burn it all the way to the morning. So 24 hours, 7 days a week, there was a sacrifice on that altar being burned, with fire and the smoke is always ascending before God. Amen? And every time that sacrifice was slaughtered, they bring the blood and they sprinkle the altar with the blood. Amen? And in ways what God was telling us this, I am angry because of your sins. I cannot tolerate sin and I am going to punish sin. And this fire that is burning 24-7 in the tabernacle represents the wrath of God over every single sin has ever committed. Amen? But in an essence, what God was saying is this, because of the sacrifice and because of the blood that is being sprinkled on that altar, even though you have sinned against me, I can let my wrath go over you and you don't need to be punished. Amen? It's because of that blood that the wrath of God is satisfied and his wrath over the sins of the children of Israel can be quenched. Amen? It is the blood that provides what? Atonement for your soul. Amen? We have propitiation, atonement from the wrath of God through the blood of Jesus. Let's take example number three. These are good. Um, this is an odd story that we read about at the very last chapter of 2 Samuel. So, what was happening is this. David was enticed by Satan to count the children of Israel so he can brag how big Israel is as a nation and not bragging God. And because of that, because he counted the children of Israel, God got angry, got hot against David. And he wanted to judge David because he's not trusting in God. He's trusting in his, his own power. So God sent a prophet to David named Gad. And Gad said, you, guess what, David? You've sinned against God. And because you've sinned, there is wrath. Sounds familiar so far, right? There is wrath. And God is giving you one of three options you have to choose. Option number one, you have famine for three years. Option number two, you have your enemies being in charge of you for three months. And option number three, you have a plague going through the land in three days. Okay? Long story short, David was smart. He knew where to go. So he said, I'll choose the plague. At least this way, I'm in God's hand. I'm not in man's hand. Because God can spare me eventually. Man will live and spare me eventually. And that was the deal. And the plague started to strike the children of Israel. And 70, look at this, 70,000 People died because there was sin in the nation of Israel, in the middle of the nation of Israel. 70,000 people died. And when the angel that was just killing everybody going through the land, they, it, it, the angel came to Jerusalem. And there was a field there belongs to a guy called Aruna the Jebusite. And when the angel got there, God looked at all that people that have died and he relented. And he said, okay, that's enough. Turn your hand and don't, don't strike Jerusalem. And the prophet went to David and he said, David, God wants to redeem that. God wanted to stop that wrath. And David said, God, I have sinned against you. And if you want to punish anybody, punish me. Don't punish the children of Israel. I am the one who sinned. So God sent the prophet to him and he said, okay, you want the wrath to stop? 
go and offer a, offer a sacrifice. And that's how the wrath will stop. And that's where we pick up in 2 Samuel 24 to 25. Look at what happened here. And David built there. That's where the field of Aaron at the Jebusite. David built there the altar of the Lord and offered what? Burnt offering and peace offering. Look at this after that. So the Lord, look at this. So the Lord responded to the plea of the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Realize this. There was a plea from the land throughout the time that God will stop his wrath. But when did wrath actually stop? When there was a sacrifice, when the burnt offering and the peace offering were offered to God, when an innocent sacrifice was slaughtered and the blood was shed, that's when and only when the wrath of God was averted over the children of Israel. Amen? It is the blood that provides atonement for sin. Amen? And it's only through the blood of Jesus that the wrath of a holy and a righteous God against every single sin we have ever committed can ever be averted over us. Amen? Example number four. Romans 5, 9 to 10. That's what we read last week. But look at this. Much more than Paul says. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. What's going to happen? We shall be saved from the wrath to him. I want you to notice the connection. It's because of the blood of Jesus. And what the blood of Jesus could do. Which is justifying us before God. It's because of that. That it's now possible for every single one of us to escape the wrath of God. Amen. Because it is the blood. And only the blood that provides atonement and covering for our sins. Before a holy and a righteous God. Amen. Amen. Verse 10. For Again, it's the same idea. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son and shedding his blood. Right? Much more having been reconciled by the blood, we shall be saved by his life. Again, it's the blood. Paul says it's the blood. It's the blood. The only way for the wrath of God to be averted. The only way for sinners like you and me to avoid the judgment of God over our sin. There's no other way except what? The blood. Amen? Amen. Let me just close with that last example. This is good. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Look what Paul said. He said, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Amen. Now look at verse 14. Get ready. This is so good. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I'm reading this from the NIV because the NIV just nailed it. Paul said that God has canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness that stood against us and what? Condemned us. Now here's how I understand this, okay? I get a lot of, well not a lot, quite few speeding tickets, okay? (laughs) So (laughs) let's say the cop stops me because I was speeding and he gives me a ticket. And what does the ticket say? It says that Cammie Hanna owe the county of Fairfax County or the state of Virginia 200 bucks. Why? Because Cammie has broken the law, right? And this ticket right there, this piece of paper serves as my charge. This is what I'm charged with, right? And in that ticket is the charge of my, look at this, legal indebtedness. This is what I legally owe the county or owe the state for breaking the law, right? And if I ever happen to go to court, this piece of paper will stand against me and condemn me. I can plead innocent to all what I want. Guess what the judge going to look at that piece of paper, that ticket, right? In which the charge of my legal indebtedness against the law is documented, right? And that's precisely what Paul was saying here. He's saying that every time we sin, we legally owe God his punishment because we have broken his law. Amen? Because again, sin is the transgression of the law. Every time you sin, you legally owe God. And there is a document in which the charge of your legal indebtedness to a holy and a righteous God is written. Amen? And this document here stands against you in the day of judgment. When you stand before God, this will condemn you. You can plead innocent to all what you want. There is a legal document that says you have sinned, you have broken the law of God, and you owe a holy and a righteous God. Amen? 
but ready for some good news. Here's what Paul said. He said that Jesus has canceled. Amen. Jesus has canceled that charge of our legal indebtedness that we owe a holy and a righteous God. Amen. Oh, you guys need to be more excited about that. I am saying you owe God your sins, your penalty of your sins, and Jesus has canceled that on the cross. Amen. Amen. Jesus has canceled that on the cross. He has, amen. He has canceled that charge, the legal indebtedness against us, that stood against us. And he has taken it away. How? By, word for word, what did Paul say? By nailing it to the cross. It's when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood that this document of legal indebtedness that we owe God in which the wrath of God over our sins was documented was now cancelled once and for all and have been done away once and for all. Amen? Amen? He has done what? He has nailed it to the cross. Now, this is how I understand this part. And this is no Greek or Hebrew or anything like that. This is just me. Okay? Have you ever been to the Peruvian chicken place or any other restaurant or... Uh, yeah. Have you ever been to a restaurant when you go and you order your food, your chicken, and then they give you the chicken, and then they give you a handwritten receipt, uh, 15 bucks, one chicken, 15 bucks, and then you take that receipt and you go to the cashier, right? And um, the cashier has one of these old machines where they have to key in the amount of money that you owe. Uh, the cashier, thank you. And then um, they give them the ticket, okay? And um, you give them the $15, and then they take that ticket, put the $15 in the cash register, and say, 15 bucks, done. And then they take that very receipt that you took when you took the chicken, and they just have one of these metal nails next to that cash register. You guys know what I'm talking about? And they take that, and they just slap it on that nail. Amen? And once they slap it, there's a hole in it, all right? So that's precisely, I believe, what Paul was saying here. In as much as you go to the restaurant, and they give you the chicken, and they give you a receipt with it. You owe us. You legally indebted it to us for $15, because you already took chicken worth of that $15, right? But once this ticket is paid, once that receipt is paid, what has happened? It's being taken and it's being what? Nailed to that nail. Amen? And the fact that it's nailed declares that it is void. It's paid. It's done. You don't owe it no more because it has been nailed. Amen? And that's, let's say that the, the cash guy, the cashier, gets smart. And after you turn around and leave, he grabs it back from the nail and runs after you and say, hey, you owe me 15 bucks. You look at it and you see the hole and you say, what? I owe you nothing. Why? Because there is a hole in that receipt. This has been nailed. This has been paid. This has been declared void. And it is done away with. Amen? And that's precisely what Paul was telling us here. It's because of the cross that Jesus has took that charge of legal indebtedness that documents the wrath of God over our sin. What we owe a holy and a righteous God. He took it. He nailed it to the cross and declared it void. And no Satan, no demon in hell, nobody can ever has a charge against us before God because our debt has been nailed to the cross. Amen? Amen. Atonement is by good works, the Bible say, right? Now, you cannot bring nothing to God. It's the blood or nothing. Atonement in the blood. Now let me close with that thought. The response to the propitiation of God. Look at this. 1 John 2, 2. Look at this verse. And he himself is our Propitiation, that's Christ. The propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also what? For those of the whole world. And in Romans 3.25, Paul said, God has set, him forth, set Christ forth as a propitiation by his blood. Actually, the Greek for set forth literally means publicly displayed. Publicly displayed. What Paul was thinking about is this. God went to the most prominent place on planet earth. Where every single soul, it doesn't matter where they're at. They can actually look and see. And on that place, God Almighty, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, has publicly displayed Christ in front of the whole world that he is the only one by his blood is the only mean that sinners can have propitiation with God. Amen? 
And that's why John said that he's a propitiation of the whole wide world. For every single sin was ever committed. The blood of Jesus is good enough to avert the wrath of God of every single sin throughout humanity. Amen? He has publicly displayed Christ to be an atonement, to be a propitiation for his blood. Let me just finish with this. A lot of people say, you should not preach, turn or burn, or talking about the wrath of God or anything like that. And when people say, don't preach, turn or burn, I honestly think they have the wrong analogy in their mind. What they're thinking about is this, that a sinner like you and me who have broken the law of God are coming to a crossroad, right? And they have the option to obey God and turn from their sins. Or they have the option of burning and not obeying God. So people say, don't preach, turn and burn because, you know, don't offend people, whatever the reason is. But the idea in their mind, the analogy in their mind is that a sinner is at a crossroad, right? But this is wrong. The Bible doesn't say that every sinner is at a crossroad. And the sinner like you and me has the option to choose between following God and escape his wrath. Or not following God and face his wrath. Right? The Bible tells us in Romans 1.18. We read that verse that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Amen? Question. Did Paul say that the wrath of God will be revealed? Is revealed. It has already been revealed. Right? So in a way what the Bible is telling us is this. If you are today have sinned against God. You don't have the option to turn or burn. You don't have the option to make it right with God. Or not make it right with God. If you have sinned against God. You are already under the wrath of God. You are already under the judgment of God. And because of that. You need to run out of that wrath today. And take refuge in the blood of Jesus. Amen? A better analogy than the crossroad is this. Think about it this way. Every single soul that doesn't know Jesus is driving on a highway that is one way and there is no brakes. At the end of the highway there is destruction, right? This is by default where we all are. Amen? But today, listen to me, but today because God is a loving and merciful God, God is offering an exit for you. Amen? You don't have to keep going on that route to destruction, God says. I'm offering you the way out. There is an exit for you today so you can Get out of that wrath that you are already under. Amen? And that exit has a sign on it. And that sign read this. Ready? The blood of Jesus. Amen? So today, if you don't know that you're right with God. If you're talking about the wrath of God make you scared. I advise you to run and take refuge in the blood of Jesus. Amen? It's only the blood can atone for our sins. Amen? Let's all pray. Yes, Lord.